Take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. I will ask your forgiveness to those of you hoping for a Mother's Day sermon this morning. Did my best with the opening call to worship. But uh, this morning we will be in Daniel chapter 3. We have the privilege of reading one of the most entertaining chapters in the Bible, but I hope that it will not merely be entertaining, if in fact a sermon is ever entertaining, at least from my mouth, but I hope that you will be challenged in what we read. Uh, we're going to begin reading verse 1. We'll start with just the first verse, Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold. And right away we see we're not starting off very well. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, about six miles outside of the ruins of ancient Babylon today, there is a large brick formation, and some have speculated whether or not the purpose of this formation on this mounded area outside of Babylon could have been for just such a statue. We do not know, but it was not uncommon for the people of the ancient world to erect great statues to be worshipped, either of themselves or of their deities. I don't measure things in cubits. Uh, I don't have any tape measure for the cubit. Uh, so to make it a little easier for us to understand, I will tell you this is approximately 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide. We don't know what it looked like other than it was golden. Some have interjected to say, well, that doesn't seem like those proportions are very stable. A statue like that wouldn't stand for a long time, and I don't know how long it stood, but it's not up today, so I guess that's right. Uh, 90 feet by 9 foot wide. This could mean in the text, when we're told it's gold, solid gold, the wealth was certainly possessed by Nebuchadnezzar, but it's unlikely for structural purposes that it was solid gold. Probably overlaid with gold so that it would have the effect of being gold. Was it a statue of a man? Was it a statue of a beast? Was it something else? We don't know. Uh, truthfully, it doesn't matter. The purpose of it is very clear, as we will see now as we read verses 2 through 7. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, and the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So, the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the councils, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, to you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. And we get a sense here of all the vast empire of Babylon. Peoples, nations, and languages. That at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar 
had set up. So we see here that the purpose of the whole thing was to unify all of the rulers and leaders in the Babylonian Empire. You see, Babylon is a sprawling empire. They had subjugated many peoples of many tongues from many nations and cultural backgrounds. And Nebuchadnezzar, presumably with his ruling council, had set up governors all over these places. And now all of these different types of governors have been called together for the express purpose of bending the knee to the great Nebuchadnezzar's image. It was certainly a sign of, de- of dedication to Nebuchadnezzar himself as much as it was to whatever it is he had constructed in the plain of Dura. Some have wondered if perhaps the image was of Nebuchadnezzar himself. We do not know. Others have wondered if this is Nebuchadnezzar's experimentation with the golden part of the statue he had observed in chapter 2 that we read about last week. But we don't know I remember when I was in eighth grade, if you'll grant me a minute for story time, uh, we went on our class trip to Washington, D.C., and I remember we went into this large Catholic cathedral. I, I have no idea which Catholic cathedral it was. I do know from looking it up that the largest cathedral in North America is in Washington, D.C. Perhaps that's the one we visited. And we sat down on the side of a Catholic worship service. And uh, I was my first experience in a Catholic worship service, let alone in this great building. And they were throwing the big thing around and it was swinging around. And there was a whole congregation of people. And then they went around with a priest who started passing out communion. And as an eighth grader, I thought, now hold on a second. This is not exactly what happens back home. And I started to tell the folks, the, the, the eighth graders around me, you know, perhaps, you know, don't, don't take that thing, buddy, because, you know, back home, the pastor always warns us not to take the Lord's Supper casually or in vain. And by the way, on the bus right here, I heard you tell, tell 10 stories you shouldn't have told and never heard you say anything about Jesus in your life. So perhaps, I didn't say all that, but I'm thinking, perhaps it's not a good idea to be taking be taking it. Well, I offended a teacher who got very upset with me on the trip and confronted me afterwards in the group of people. And I was, believe it or not, a good kid in school, un, uh, unused to being confronted by teachers about misbehaving. And the teacher confronted me to tell me, why couldn't you just take the thing? Why couldn't you just do it? I mean, it's not that big of a deal. It's just, there's nothing, it's just a little thing of wine. It's just a little cracker. Why couldn't you just do the thing? And in that, we get a sense of what Nebuchadnezzar has in mind here. Why can't you just bend the knee to the statue? Why can't you? It's just worship to a God. It's just, it's, it's not a big thing. After all, Nebuchadnezzar is not prohibiting the worship of all of their gods back home. He's not saying you have to deny the existence or the reality of all of your gods. Just when you hear the music, just do the thing. A couple other notes here that might be interesting to you, maybe not. Uh, The words for the different leaders where I spouted them all off there, the satraps, the administrators, those are all Persian words lost by the second century when supposedly uh, people who don't believe the Bible believe that Daniel had to have been forged because it was after all the prophecy was fulfilled about the Greek empire. They were lost. The Persian words for the offices are lost by the second century. So it would seem strange if in fact, as they claimed it were a, for- a forgery, that they were making up Persian words with no Greek meaning. There are some Greek words in the text for the various instruments, but then you know people are like, aha, see, it was really written during the Greek empire. And then archaeologically we discovered There were Greek merchants and people moving throughout the Babylonian region up to 100 years before Nebuchadnezzar. And in fact, Greek mercenaries even fought for Nebuchadnezzar in his wars. 
So it's no surprise that Greek culture has found its way into the Babylonian Empire. And finally, we have, ex- we have excavated, not me personally, but we have excavated uh, burning furnaces for, that existed for the exact purpose of, of executing people. Uh, in the Babylonian Empire, in what we call modern-day Iraq, we don't know, perhaps it could even be that one of these furnaces is uh, the furnace we're talking about here. Unlikely, but this was a known form of execution. And if you think back to the 1930s and the 1940s, we will acknowledge that pagan people for thousands of years have been burning people uh, in execution. Now, you may find all of that uninteresting, but I give it to you anyway with the mind towards those who wrestle with criticism of the Bible and need to hear the truth of the matter. As for the story, it's a fairly simple proposition. When the band plays, we're all going to bow down. And if you don't get with that program, you're going to die. That's pretty much it. I will add to this, it is almost unfathomable that the threat of a fiery furnace would even be required. After all, as I said, Nebuchadnezzar is not forbidding the worship of any other people's gods. And these people are, by and large, all polytheistic with their multiple gods anyway. And after all, weren't the gods obviously in Nebuchadnezzar's favor if they had allowed him to conquer so much of the world? So it's unfathomable, really, that most of these guys would need any kind of a threatening element to this. After all, these were the privileged people in the Babylon. These are the people that Nebuchadnezzar had set up to rule. They were doing quite well in the Babylonian Empire. So the threat of a fiery furnace is almost unfathomable, except it could be that this whole thing is somewhat of a trap for these three Jewish guys who alone came from a monotheistic culture, who believed in the one God of Israel, who had commands that they were not to bend the knee, nor even make an image to worship. And it could be that these three Jewish guys who were governors in the great capital city of Babylon, had made some enemies who knew that they were unlikely to bend the knee in the plain of Dura. Edicts like this, by the way, were very common in the ancient uh, world. Uh, The Caesars of Rome declared to be worshipped as God themselves uh, at one point in the Roman Empire. Christians were persecuted later in the Roman Empire because they wouldn't simply eat the food presented and worshipped to them of the Roman gods. That was the way that uh, the Romans would ask the Christians to basically recant their faith. Hey, we can't have any more of this Christian stuff anymore. Participate in these worship, you know, eatings of this meat. And And the Christians say, no, we can't do that. And then they'd be executed or sent off to the mines in Rome. Alexander the Great demanded that his soldiers all bow and worship him as a god as he conquered the known world, and one day there will be a great world ruler who also demands that he be worshipped as a god, a false messiah, if you will, an anti-Christ. Let's keep reading in verse 8. Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. Didn't take them very long to find them, did it? They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And I, when I, whenever one of my children comes to me and reminds me of a decree that I have made, I know that one of my other children is about to be accused of something. I, I don't know if you have ever had that experience, but... 
uh, Nebuchadnezzar did not forget. Uh, he knew what he had said, and they said, hey, just as a reminder of all that you have said here, now we would like to tell you, verse 12, there are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, I will tell you it's very likely that chapter 3 takes place sometime after chapter 2. a matter of fact, uh, most biblical scholars believe a period of 20 years or so has passed. We don't know that for sure. But if any time at all has passed, during that time, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you remember how chapter 2 left off, have been ruling governors in the capital city of Babylon, and they have made some enemies. It takes no time at all for these enemies to find them in the plain of Dura and to accuse them before Nebuchadnezzar. Notice the ethnic emphasis in verse 12, these Jews. And then notice the accusation even towards Nebuchadnezzar that you have set over the affairs of Babylon. It is unclear if these Chaldeans, by the way, it says the Chaldeans accused them. The Chaldeans were the ancient Babylonians. They were like of the first Babylonian peoples. It's very clear that they felt they themselves should be the rulers in the capital city of Babylon, not these, these conquered people, these foreign people. These Chaldeans, if they were ever grateful to Daniel and his friends for saving their lives however long ago in chapter 2, have uh, let that gratitude go by the wayside and envy and frustration at being found to be passed over for the ruling elements in the city of Babylon. Now I'll give you a few other cool things to think about as we go through this. There is in fact, and you can Google this, which has become our new encyclopedia for the world. You can Google uh, the Istanbul, Istanbul like the, like the country, the, the Istanbul prism, not prison, prism. I don't know what you'll find if you Google the Istanbul prison, but the Istanbul P-R-I-S-M, the prism, it is uh, something that was excavated from the time of Nebuchadnezzar's empire. And on one side, it has Nebuchadnezzar declaring his great allegiance to the Babylonian god Marduk. And on the other sides, it has the rulers and all the governors in the Babylonian empire at the time. And at that time, in, in the list of the 12 rulers in the city of Babylon itself, are the Babylonian spellings of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's very cool. It's very exciting. You should, you should look at it. It's very interesting. These were real ruling people in Babylon. There's a strong indication, actually, and, and this is not the first time we'll come across this, that Nebuchadnezzar's writing of his loyalty to the god Marduk here is a, a response to an internal rebellion he's facing inside of his own kingdom. And it could very well be that this whole scene in Daniel 3 fits this dramatic sequence of Nebuchadnezzar trying to consolidate and set at ease fears that he was wandering from the Babylonian gods. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar's close counselor was Daniel who himself was a Jew who served the one living God. In the province of Babylon, he had of 12 administrators made three who were servants of the one true living God and had finished chapter two, giving great homage to the one God of Israel. So it's very possible that this whole scene in chapter three is a political response to accusations against Nebuchadnezzar, accusations of disloyalty to the Babylonian empire. We don't know, but that's what historians think about Nebuchadnezzar and the rebellion he was facing, and the reason the Istanbul prism exists. Um, it says here, when he hears that three of his top guys are not going with the flow in the plain 
of Dura, he's full of rage and fury. And you might ask, where is Daniel in all of this? The truth is we don't know where Daniel is. There has been multiple speculations. I can run through them quickly with you. Um, one is Daniel was away on mission or on uh, some kind of diplomatic situation at the time. Two is that Daniel was spared by Nebuchadnezzar because he was a close, he was not a, Daniel was not a ruler in Babylon. He was a close advisor to Nebuchadnezzar. And it could very well be that Nebuchadnezzar knew Daniel wasn't going to bend the knee. And so he uh, leaves him back home instead of coming along with him to the plain of Dura. It could also be that because, Nebuch- or because Daniel simply wasn't a ruler, he was never invited out into the plain of Dura where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had been made governors and given rule and authority, uh, were invited as part of the story. But we don't know. That's the honest truth. We don't know where Daniel is in the story. We do know this, in the ancient world, opposing a man's God was akin to opposing a man. That's, that's uh, honestly the genesis of a lot of polytheistic culture. Oh, oh, you have a God? Okay, we will consider it. Oh, you have a God? We will consider it. Frankly, that same sentiment exists in our world today, where it is no longer acceptable to disagree with what someone believes without being accused of hating the person. Yeah, they're facing something. So Now, Christians don't believe that. Christians believe we have a responsibility to be declarers of the truth, to hold to our Christian values, to oppose lie and uncertainty, but in a spirit that loves our neighbors and loves our enemies and loves the world around us, the people in the world around us. Verse 13 continues. Nebuchadnezzar is not thinking that way. He's very angry and very offended. It says in verse 13, so they brought, they brought these men before the king. Then verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? He doesn't give them a chance to respond. Instead, he immediately says, Now, if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. And the good is implied there in the text. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Now we should note historically that Nebuchadnezzar is not remembered as a patient man. We must realize this is a rare second chance. He did not give many second chances. He certainly was not a person of second chance in chapter 2 where he's ordering that the men be hacked in pieces and their houses burned down. There is something important for us to see in Nebuchadnezzar's answer that we should be warned about as Christians. Nebuchadnezzar, it seems, has no trouble acknowledging the existence of supernatural gods, but when it comes to practice, when it comes to real life, as it were, He considered them ultimately powerless. For he says, there is no God who can deliver you from my hands. And this, in a sense, is the heart of sin. There are many people who are willing to acknowledge the possibility of gods. Oh, there could be something out there. There could be something here or there. But when it comes to the way they live their lives, they live as if they were practicing atheists with no consideration towards them at all. After all... Here is Nebuchadnezzar in the plain of Dura. And here is his army. And there is the furnace. What God could possibly keep me from putting you there at this moment in time? If I want to put you there, 
There's nothing that can stand in the way. Nebuchadnezzar says here, I can do what I want, and no God is going to stop me. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king. Now, I'll just stop here. This is my favorite answer in the entire Bible, okay? It doesn't, I, there's a lot of good answers in the Bible. There's a lot of bad answers in the Bible, too. There's a lot of good answers in the Bible. This is my favorite one. It says, Neb, they, they, they answer, here's what they say to the king. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. <laughs> That's my favorite response in, the whole, in, in, in all the Bible. Now, there's more that follows, but that is really bold. If that is the case, they say, that you're going to throw us in the burning fiery furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not... Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. We observe here that these men are unmoved by Nebuchadnezzar's threats. In fact, they say, we do not even need to answer you in this matter. Note then, with regards to Babylon and ruling in Babylon, these men owed Nebuchadnezzar a response with every conceivable part of their public life and administrations. But when it comes to the God that they worship, Nebuchadnezzar has no authority over them. He is not their king. He is not their judge when it comes to the God that they owe their lives to. This is a little like Jesus' response in John 19. You remember Jesus being questioned by Pilate. And Pilate says, why aren't you speaking to me? Don't you know that I have the power to either save you or crucify you? And you remember what Jesus says in John 19. It's verse 11. He says, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. You're not actually in charge of anything here. The only authority that Nebuchadnezzar had had been granted to him by God. And in fact, by taking up, by presuming the authority to Command men and women how to worship. He is attempting to usurp the authority of the one true living God who alone can command worship. Who alone we owe an account of our worship to. Now, to this point, the three men add that God is able to deliver them and then boldly assert and he will deliver us from your hands. This is their reply to Nebuchadnezzar's question. Who? What? Who can deliver you? What God can deliver you? Our God can. They boldly answer, adding, But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image that you have set up. It is possible, they acknowledge, that God does not intervene. They seem very confident that he would. I don't know where that confidence comes from. But it is possible that he does not. And if he doesn't, let's make no mistake about it. We will trust him even unto death. And even if we burn alive in there, do not take that as any sort of concession that we were wrong. We concede nothing. If we go into that furnace and burn alive, we will not go regretting and wishing that we had worshipped your gods. 
This is like Job. In Job chapter 13, 15, you may know the phrase, probably not the reference, but Job says, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. That's not a common faith. That's not a human faith. We don't trust like that. We don't trust people who allow us to suffer. It is a divine faith. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach. I don't know if you've ever stood before an authority and watched the expression of their faith change. I, I've seen their face change. I have seen the face of an authority figure and, you know, you walk in and, you know, uh, I remember as a young boy, my, my dad saying, Reggie Nathan, and coming out thinking, what's up, dad? And you see the look on his face, you're like, uh-oh, <laughs> I don't know what, I don't know what, it, what, you know. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, and were cast in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent, and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When it says full of fury, it literally means that. He was as angry as he could possibly be. No more fury would fit. He was full of it. John Wolvert, a Bible commentator who I admire deeply, makes this observation, um, that it would have been wiser actually for Nebuchadnezzar to cool down the furnace if he wanted to torture these guys or increase their pain. It would have been wiser to, to grad- not heat it up, which would have just made this an instantaneous kind of thing here. But then he obser- Wolvert observes this, and I quote, There is no fool on earth like a man who has lost his temper. And Nebuchadnezzar did a stupid thing. Now, I have seen my share of respectable men who get their feelings hurt or who lose a game or who take an offense or whose pride gets wounded and they lose their temper and act like fools and it turns to bitterness. Just a word on anger since I think it would be irresponsible to miss the opportunity from a pastoral perspective. The Bible says, be angry and do not sin. That's Ephesians 4.26 and in the next phrase. It says, do not even let the sun go down on your anger and do not give an opportunity to the devil. In other words, when a human being experiences the emotion of anger, get rid of it quickly, Christian. Don't even let the sun, don't let the day close while still feeling it. Because the devil would love such an opportunity to make a fool out of you in your faith. I've heard people say, well, there's such a thing as righteous anger, and it's true, there are righteous reasons for a person to be angry. But I submit to you, you will not do righteous things with your anger. Well, how do you know that? Well, the Bible tells me so. James 1.20 says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In fact, in both 2 Corinthians 12 and Galatians 5, we are warned that the outbursts that come from our anger are damnable and that those who practice those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, but Nebuchadnezzar is very angry. He is insulted. His pride is wounded. And so these faithful soldiers, these men of valor, who have made a name for themselves, fighting, 
putting their lives on the line for Nebuchadnezzar in war. These men must be burned alive and die for no reason other than a man's foolishness out of pride, wounded pride. Think about that, Dad, the next time you want to throw something up against the wall at home. You think about that the next time you let yourself scream at someone. Raise your voice and holler, condemn someone. Think about that. Good thing you aren't a king. God knows who would die in your stupidity. Don't think that our sin will go without practical consequence in our lives. Well, the Bible tells us, be angry and do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. You may be angry for a good reason, and it may need a righteous response. First, put away your anger, and then respond righteously. Verse 23. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Imagine the scene here, if you will, in the plain of Durham. I cannot imagine how silent it was at this point in time. Um, This had started as a feast, a celebration with music and a time of unity and everything. And these people did not expect to watch people burn alive today. There was no reason to think that anyone would even object to this. There was little reason to think that anyone was going to be executed. This was supposed to be a feast, a celebration. And it had turned into a torture. It had turned into a murdering of men. And you can just imagine all of the people gathered. Who knows how many people of all the different provinces of Babylon, all the different rulers in those places, watching this unfold with no clue what to say or do or respond. Verse 24, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose in haste, and he spoke, saying thus to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of a fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And the satraps, administrators, governors... The king's counselors gathered together and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Now we see as Nebuchadnezzar watches, he sees something unexpected. That his anger, so unexpected, his anger is overcome with excitement and amazement at what he's seeing. I've seen this before. I've seen uh, players, coaches, teammates, and fans lose their minds because they think in the closing seconds of a game that a basketball game is going to be lost because somebody has made an unjust ruling or an unjust call and they are angry and they are frustrated and they are raising alarm and you hear it throughout the fan. And then the next second, their team throws in a game-winning shot and it's immediate excitement. All the anger is gone. So we see uh, the, the, the reality that in a person that our anger, no matter how justified or unjustified, can quickly be overcome by something astonishing and amazing. And here, this is exactly what happens with Nebuchadnezzar. It says he rose. He literally got out of his chair. He rose in haste. It says he was astonished. 
How many of those guys did we throw in there? It was three, right? Because I see four. Now he says the fourth is like the Son of God in some translations. A better translation is a son of the gods. It's unlikely Nebuchadnezzar had any understanding of Jesus Christ or would be testifying to seeing Jesus Christ in the burning fiery furnace at this point in time. He goes on to call this individual an angel, so you know that's more along the lines of, of what he's saying here. We don't know how, what looked different about the fourth figure, only that one of these things was not like the other. The only thing that touched them as they come out of the fire, the only thing the fire had touched was the, the, the bounds. See, Nebuchadnezzar had, 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 had bound them up and God had set them free. Verse 28, then Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, notice the guys still haven't given an answer. They told him, we don't have to answer you in this, but they still haven't said a word. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's words and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego once again in the province of Babylon. And I would like to see where were those Chaldean guys when Nebuchadnezzar is saying all this, kind of like maybe slipping a little bit further into the background. Notice his words. There is no other God who can deliver like this. That much is obviously true. It's impossible to imagine the emotional impact of all this, even for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who I hope had remained faithful. I think I would have been saying, is it okay if I take the next few days off to recover from this whole experience? Thank you for the promotion, but my nerves are a bit frayed right now. Let me ask you something. Why did God do this? Because God doesn't seem to do this stuff very often, not even in the Bible. The Bible has hundreds of stories. The Bible does not have hundreds of stories like this. In fact, we could be overwhelmed with hundreds of real-life stories, and some from the Bible, where the people who are faithful die. They die. God's Word speaks to these people in Hebrews 11, in the Hall of Faith, saying of them, of whom this world was not worthy. So why does God do this? I would suggest an answer. God's people, the Israelites in this case, have not been faithful to him. That much is plain to see in all the stories leading up to this. That's why we went through it. They have not been faithful. But God is faithful to his people. And here, not only does he protect these three guys individually, but in the gathering of every, virtually every ruler in the entire Babylonian empire, he does something so that they all hear the decree of the king, nobody better be saying anything bad about the God of Israel. And in this way, I presume, affords a level of protection during the entire Babylonian captivity for all Jews everywhere scattered throughout the Babylonian empire who want to remain faithful to their God. Would you go home being the governor of the satrap after watching this and the little Jewish group in your society who wants to have their synagogue and worship their God? Would you go home and say, hey, stop that, cut that out. You're not allowed to worship that God. After Nebuchadnezzar says, anybody who says anything amiss is going to be cut in pieces and have their house burned down. God is being faithful 
to his people here. Why? Because they deserve it? No, not because they deserve it. You want to know the truth. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have gotten what they deserved had they died in the fiery furnace because they were sinners and the wages of sin is death. God doesn't have to save them, but he does. I want you, if you will, to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. It's the passage we read this morning. I just want to read it again in closing here. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Now in 2 Timothy... We'll just read verses 7 through 12. We won't even read all the verses we read this morning. In 2 Timothy, Paul himself is a prisoner. And he is facing death. And he does not expect to live. He will close the letter to Timothy, in the end of 2 Timothy, in kind of a very sad, disheartening tone. I, I, I'm, I'm going to be killed. I know that my time is over on this earth. And Timothy is a, a pastor who he had mentored as a young boy. He's the one we read about this morning, whose mother and whose grandmother's faith they had instilled in Timothy and the Lord God of Israel. And now Paul had trained him to be a pastor and left him in Ephesus to do the work of a pastor there. And now he writes this. This is verse 7, 2 Timothy chapter 1. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Fear, this, this fear, if you're afraid, that, the feelings of fear don't come from God, Christian. But a spirit of power and of love and a sound mind, a stable mind. That's what comes from God. Therefore, Paul writes verse 8, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in sufferings for the gospel. Fear, he says, might be normal, even ordinary when facing death, but it doesn't come from God. Don't be ashamed of Jesus because he was crucified. Don't be ashamed of me because I was in, I'm imprisoned, because I'm facing death. He's challenging Timothy, share in sufferings for the gospel. And he says, according, this is verse 8, according to the power of God. What power? What power is there that's on display from God? When men and women are being beheaded or put in coliseums and eaten by animals or arrested and thrown in prison, what power? Share in me with this, in these sufferings according to the power of God. Well, listen to Paul's full train of thought here. It's at the end of what I'm about to read. Listen. Share with me in the sufferings of the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with the holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed in the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. Here's the power. It's coming up right here. Who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In other words, you share with me in these sufferings according to the power of God, knowing that the moment somebody chops my head off here, my God has abolished death and brought life and immortality to me through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that whereas this emperor thinks he's cutting my head off, he's really simply bringing me the power and the glory of the almighty God because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and he will wipe away every tear from every eye and there I will rule and reign with him forever. This is how you suffer for the gospel according to the power of God. Don't be ashamed of this, Timothy. 
See, if you're ashamed of this, you deny the power of God that all of this threat of death stuff doesn't have any power over the believer at all. There's a sense in which the believer can proudly say, I will never die. And in fact, the New Testament tells us that. Yet, though they die, they shall live. Paul says in verse 11, this gospel, not a salvation of works, he said in the prior verses, but a faith in Jesus Christ. This gospel, I was appointed a preacher and a teacher of the Gentiles. And this is why I suffer, verse 12. Nevertheless, and this is a bit like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who said, even if we die in there, we're not going to, you just know we concede nothing. Paul says, nevertheless, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel of God. You chop my head off, and everybody can laugh at my fallen body there. Everybody can make a mockery of my God, but let you know I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. I know Jesus. And I am persuaded that he is able, the power of God, to keep what I have committed to him, my soul, my life, my eternity, my future, against that day, until that day, that day, when every person will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, the great white throne of God, and the books and the records of every life will be opened before Him and your life will be laid bare as if it were a nursery story with all of its failings and failures and we're told that all those whose names are not found written in the book of life, all those who are not saved by their faith in Jesus Christ, the Lamb's book of life, it's called in Revelation, will be cast into the lake of fire. Where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is called the second death. If you stand before the Lord and the books are opened for your life, there will not be enough good works to overcome the sin that you have committed against the Almighty God. And so there is a Savior who has come to rescue you from the fiery furnace of God's judgment. And he has stepped down into that judgment with you as an angel stepped into the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he has experienced a sinner's death for you, giving his life in the place where your life belonged. And God poured out his wrath on his spotless, blemishless Son of God. Jesus bore our transgressions. Why? So that all who believe in him might be saved. That's the gospel. If you hear that this morning and you say, well, I'm not good enough to be saved. Well, I don't live a life good enough. I'm still a bad person. Maybe I will come back in a couple of months when I get things back together. No, 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 no. You've got the Christian faith confused with something else. This is not a faith where good people get saved. This is a faith where bad people get saved. Jesus is a great physician for people who are sick. This is a place where we admit all of our failings before the Lord Jesus Christ and ask Him nevertheless because of His great love to save us. Have you done that? I ask you to pray with me now.
Father, there's anyone sitting here in this room who has not trusted your son as the savior of their soul. Please cause them to walk forward or to run forward, to crawl forward at the end of the service and to speak with me that we might be clear on the gospel that their names may be written in the Lamb's book of life. And as for the rest of us, let us not be content to watch other people burn in hell. Let us be purveyors of the gospel, even if it means suffering, even if it means awkwardness and uncomfortableness, even if it means mockery, even if it means worldly shame. Let us not be ashamed. Let us know whom we've believed in, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, be persuaded that you will never let us go. It's in Jesus' name I pray.